Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 16th episode of Late Night Crimecast. I'm your host, Robin Steffens, and every week on Thursday, I'm going to post a new true crime story. I will cover cases that are local, cases that got a lot of media attention, and everything in between. Now, before we get started, I would like to ask you, my late night listeners, to leave a rating and review on this podcast. They are a lot more helpful than you think, and it's as easy as going to the Apple Podcast app, scrolling to the bottom, putting in a rating, and writing a review. You guys can write things such as, oh, I love her voice, or oh, I love watching her sleep while I listen to her podcast. It's simple. Seriously, guys. Also, if you want to follow Late Night Crimecast on social media, I would appreciate that as well. Now let's get into the case. It's actually something I found on a whim. I was researching a completely different case, but was so compelled by this one and the outcome that I decided to cover this case instead. It took a lot more research, but I was actually able to find some blog posts from the psycho who committed these crimes, and the blog basically details the murder and mayhem this innocent family was subject to. I'm going to be using a lot of what I found on there to describe what happened to this poor family, so yeah. It's going to be wild, so buckle up guys as we dive into the murder and abductions of the Grony family. Coeur d'Alene is a city in northwest Idaho known mostly for its nature and beauty. The city borders the shores of a beautiful 30-mile lake, leaving the backdrop of nothing but blue skies, forested mountains, and sparkling waters for its residents. During the summer, the area is known mostly for its water sports. This includes swimming, kayaking, paddleboarding, jet skiing, water skiing, and lake cruises. This place is somewhere one would go if they were looking for a quiet getaway in a rugged setting. But to the Grony family, this area was home. The Grony family lived in a rather secluded area on the outskirts of Coeur d'Alene. On one side of their home was a closed campground and on the other an open field. They had neighbors and friends in the area nearby, of course, but they were mostly secluded. Those in the home consisted of 40-year-old Brenda Groney, her 37-year-old boyfriend, Mark McKenzie, and Brenda's three children, 13-year-old Slade, 9-year-old Dylan, and 8-year-old Shasta. It was May, summer of 2005. The family was carrying on as normal and enjoying the summer months. Brenda and Shasta would be out sunbathing, the boys would be playing outside with their dogs and BB guns, and they would be having neighbors over sometimes. So basically, they were doing things that would not be of interest to most. But unbeknownst to them, that month of May, someone was watching them. That someone was Joseph Edward Duncan. Duncan was an extremely disturbed man on the run from the law. He had a long criminal history, and at that time, he had been accused of child molestation. July 3rd, 2004, Duncan had molested a boy at a playground in Minnesota. He then tried to do the same to the boy's friend. He was subsequently arrested and charged for those acts in March of 2005. 
but a friend of his helped him post his $15,000 bail and he was released from custody on April 5th, 2005. And from there, he skipped town. Prior to leaving, he bought night vision goggles, a video camera, and rented a red Jeep Grand Cherokee. He used this car to drive himself through several states, including Missouri, where he decided to steal some license plates. The car was reported stolen, and he had a warrant put out for his arrest, but it was already too late. He had already started to head west for Idaho. When Duncan reached Idaho, he somehow ended up on the outskirts of Coeur d'Alene. And that's where Duncan found his next victims. He had spotted Brenda and Shasta sunbathing outside. He had taken note of eight-year-old Shasta in her bathing suit and decided to watch the family more. He soon became enticed by the two youngest grownie children, Shasta and Dylan. He stalked the family for several days. He would stay far away and hidden out of sight, but watch them for hours on end. He would bring a backpack filled with food, binoculars, night vision goggles, a waterproof tarp, and even pen and paper to take notes. He was just waiting for the right moment and planning his attack. It was May 15, 2005, and the family had decided to go run some errands in Coeur d'Alene. Slade, the oldest sibling of the three grownie children, went to mow the lawn of a neighbor. After he completed the job, the neighbor didn't have enough money to pay him, but promised he would stop by his house the next day with the money. After the errands were completed, the family returned to the house and had some people over for a barbecue. This barbecue went well on into the night. Overall, a great day for them. The family had went to bed that night, not knowing what horrors awaited them. Around 2 a.m. on May 16, 2005, Duncan had drove his red Jeep towards the Gronies' home and ended up parking it near a neighbor's barn. After watching the family for so long, he felt prepared to go ahead with his plans. And he had every detail of what he was going to do extremely well planned out. He had changed his clothing and shoes to that of which he had found at a Salvation Army, he had also gotten a sawed-off shotgun and armed himself with it, and also he got himself a framing hammer. His backpack that usually contained items to spy on the family now contained several heavy-duty zip ties, duct tape, gloves, a night vision scope, extra ammo for the shotgun, and a ski mask. Not only that, but he made sure to wear gloves and wipe down every single item he had with him so that there was no possibility of fingerprints being left. After leaving the red jeep at the barn, he walked a couple hundred yards to the Gronies' home. When he got to the house, he entered through the back door, which was already unlocked. I'm guessing that because of the area and how secluded it was, they felt safe enough to leave the doors open, so that really allowed him to creep through the back door and through the kitchen. He knew the family had dogs, so he was very wary of stirring them. I mean, he was wary of waking anyone up, but especially the dogs and maybe Brenda's boyfriend, Mark. He wanted to avoid the dogs and subdue the family before they could wake up and really be aware of what was happening. So he went down the hallway, connected to the kitchen, and this hallway basically led to the different bedrooms in the home. And so he's walking down the hallway with all intent to find Mark first, 
but he ended up passing the living room where he saw a light on. He turned and saw Brenda on the couch and he thought that she was awake, but quickly realized that she was still sleeping and of no threat to him. So then he continued down the hall to where he thought the master bedroom might be. But before he could get to the room, the dogs were alerted. They immediately started barking and it looked like they were about to charge him, but then Duncan pulled out his gun and they kind of backed off. I'm thinking that because the boys had their BB guns and I'm sure that Mark had actual guns, the dogs were very familiar with them. Maybe they were like, you know, scared of the loud noises they made or the damage they caused. So they just ended up backing off. And this actually worked in Duncan's advantage. So the dogs go away, but Duncan ends up turning around and he sees that all the noise the dogs had made woke Brenda up. She couldn't see him from where he was positioned, but he decided to take action anyway. He walked directly into her view and ordered her to tell him where Mark was. Seeing this crazed armed man in her house, she immediately followed his instructions and led him upstairs to Mark, who was still sleeping on the bed. She wakes Mark up and, you know, immediately Mark sees this situation and he doesn't say or do anything. And I'm thinking this is because maybe he's in shock. I mean, he's just woken up out of his sleep and he sees an armed man in his home. So what is there really to do? So, you know, Duncan makes Brenda tie the wrists and ankles of Mark with the zip ties that he brought with him and he forces them to go downstairs. And this is easy for Brenda to go downstairs, but because Mark was tied up, he basically had to like crawl and scoot down the stairs. So after they both get down the stairs, Duncan instructs Mark to lay on his stomach and tells Brenda to wake up the children. First, she goes to get Slade, the 13-year-old. He reluctantly comes out of his room and is also instructed to lay on his stomach. Once again, Brenda is forced to zip tie and restrain him. Next, she goes to get Dylan and Shasta, who were sleeping through all of this. She wakes them up and they come out as well. He then instructs all three of them to lie on the floor, on their stomachs. He zip ties Brenda's wrists and binds her feet with duct tape. Then he duct tapes Dylan and Shasta's wrists and feet with duct tape. Now, during all this time, Duncan is trying to comfort the family. He's saying that he's not going to hurt them, nothing's going to happen to them. He just wants to rob them, basically, and then leave. So they're really complying with him because they think that this man doesn't want to do any harm to them. After they're all tied up, Duncan leaves them for a bit where I'm sure they're trying to stay calm, thinking it will all be over soon and that, you know, he's just going to take their money. But when he leaves, he's not taking money or stealing from them like he said. He's ensuring that no one has been alerted, that the house is empty besides the family, and basically ensuring that there's nothing that can stop his plans at this point. So after checking the house, he goes back to the living room and gets the oldest boy, Slade, to come with him. So Duncan helps the boy up and pulls the boy basically through the back door where no one can see or hear them. He then gets the framing hammer that he had brought with him and uses that to strike the boy on the head with full force. He hits the boy on the head twice and the boy falls forward. He stops moving and... At this point, Duncan assumes that he's dead. Next, Duncan goes back inside and grabs the little girl Shasta. He brings her outside of the house the same way, but he just keeps her away from her older brother so she can't see him. So I guess basically so she can't panic. He just tells her, stay here and don't move. He then goes inside again and gets the younger boy, Dylan. He puts him and Shasta together. 
Then he goes inside again, this time for Brenda. He goes in and tells her to stand up, but she's unable to walk, so he tries to rip off the duct tape. That doesn't really work and it ends up making her fall pretty hard. She cries out in pain and then he pretty much just decides to hit her on the head several times with the hammer until he's sure that she's dead. He then goes to Mark and starts hitting him in the head as well until he is sure he is dead too. After he does that, Duncan goes back outside to the small children and it appears that they get caught in the act of talking to someone or mouthing to someone and now Duncan starts freaking out. He's sure that everyone is dead but them so he's afraid that someone is in the area, someone heard or saw what was going on and then he starts panicking again when he sees that the older boy's body is gone. He's still thinking that the older boy is dead and that maybe the person that the kids were talking to had dragged him off somewhere to get help. And so he runs around the house where he actually finds the older boy. The older boy had survived and he's actually standing up in the front yard. But now he sees Duncan and he's frozen in fear. Duncan just quickly walks up to him and starts hitting him in the head again with the hammer, again to make sure that he's dead. After that, Duncan goes back and gets the smaller children and puts them into a pickup truck owned by the family. The truck is able to work without a key just by turning the ignition. So this man is able to drive and transfer the kids to the red Jeep using the pickup. He then backs the Jeep onto the paved road and he literally takes the extra measure to even scrape away the Jeep's tire tracks from the dirt road. Like he was doing everything to cover his tracks. He then drives both children over a hundred miles away to another state and an even more secluded area. So the sun comes up and remember how Slade had mowed the neighbor's lawn and didn't receive payment? Well that neighbor came by that morning like he said. When he arrived, he sees blood on the door of the home and he's unable to get anyone from inside to come out, but he hears the dogs barking from inside. He takes note of this and that the family's cars are parked in the driveway with their doors open and then he calls 911. When the police arrive, they go around to the back and see more blood and the door ajar. Once inside, they find the bodies of Brenda and Slade in the kitchen and Mark in the living room. All three bludgeoned to death. Just a side note here, it turns out that after the second time that Slade was hit with the hammer and left for dead, he actually survived that somehow and he got a blanket from his room, he put it under his mom's head and he laid next to her and he must have died soon after that. So that's really sad, just like an extra side note, um, but I just want to explain how he ended up inside next to her rather than outside where I had last said that he was. But okay. Back to what I was saying, the police, they take note of the crime scene and that both of the youngest children are gone. Immediately they take action and seal off the crime scene and a search for Dylan and Shasta is launched along with a nationwide Amber Alert. So clearly this is a super important case. The parents have been murdered, another child has been murdered in the household and the two youngest kids are missing. The police, they start to go through many theories about what happened to the children. So first they want to look at the biological dad and they're really quickly able to clear him as a suspect. I think they only had him as a suspect for 10 days. Um, but then they really wanted to start looking towards those who maybe might have had something to do with the family. So they started to look at the people who went to the barbecue the day prior. 
And so they find a man named Robert Roy Lutner who knew the family, of course, and he had a criminal record and owed the family $2,000. He was investigated and obviously, you know, made a suspect, but eventually he was cleared. So then they start to think that maybe Brenda and Mark were into some kind of trouble, maybe a drug deal gone bad, maybe gang activity, because they both had meth and marijuana in their system when they died. But nothing was really adding up to that, and so they went weeks without anything, no real leads or motives, until July 2nd. Around 1.30 p.m. on July 2nd, 48 days after the murders and abduction, Duncan and Shasta were spotted in Coeur d'Alene, Denny's restaurant, by two young men. One of the men had recognized Shasta from a billboard that he had passed earlier that evening and alerted his girlfriend and several employees inside, some of whom had already recognized Shasta. The manager called 911 at 1.51 p.m. and police arrived at the restaurant. Duncan was arrested on site and Shasta was taken to the hospital. Unfortunately, there were no traces of Dylan and it turns out that he was murdered while at the campsite. By Shasta's account, she says that Duncan was digging through a big box, apparently looking for beers, when Shasta heard an explosion. She then heard her brother screaming. The gun was in the bin as well and it had went off, somehow firing through and hitting Dylan in the stomach. Shasta said she saw Duncan put the shotgun to Dylan's head and try to fire. For whatever reason, the gun didn't go off and Dylan begged and begged and begged Duncan not to kill him. Duncan ended up ignoring his pleas. He reloaded the gun, put the gun back to the boy's head, and pulled the trigger. Dylan was killed instantly. Duncan then wrapped the boy's body in a tarp and burned it in a fire. The things those children endured were unimaginable. They were sexually, physically, and mentally abused. Duncan would threaten the children with the hammer and rub it in their faces that it was the same hammer he used to kill their family. He would film sex acts with the children, beat them, force them to call him daddy, threaten to shoot them if they ran away, and in one instance, Dylan was hung to the point of unconsciousness before he was revived again, and then in another, Duncan had tied Dylan to a log and beat him on the back with a stick until the stick broke. Just horrific things. The way that Duncan and Shasta actually ended up back in Coeur d'Alene was that Duncan had been promising the kids that he would take them back home because apparently he had felt bad. And you know, even after murdering Dylan, he finally decided to take just Shasta back. And so police, they later discovered a blog that Duncan had which had implications that he had claimed even more lives than that, um, that he had sexually assaulted and killed even more people. And so as a result, the FBI and investigators in the case, you know, there was at least five states that they had to determine a timeline of Duncan's travels and try to correspond it with any unsolved rapes and or murders of children. 
In the end, Duncan pled guilty to numerous murder, kidnapping, and rape charges. He was sentenced to three death sentences and to this day remains on federal death row. So that's going to be the end of today's episode. I don't really want to discuss much more yet about uh, the surviving victim Shasta, but if you look up this case, you'll find some recent articles about her. I mean, I don't really want to talk about it because this girl, she has been through so much. She's had to overcome so much mentally that for her to even be here today and be okay, I, I just... I would just feel horrible talking about her any kind of negative way because realistically she was severely impacted by all of this having her family murdered right before her eyes being molested tortured all of the horrors she went through i just wouldn't feel right sharing anything negative that's been reported about her but if you want to see where she's at now you can look it up yourself and there's also the blog post that I found. I'm not going to share them. I'm not going to give you a link, but if you look for the blog post, you will probably find them pretty easily. They're really sick, so that's like a warning. He details the things he not only did to this family, but to other people, like children. And this is all from his perspective. And it's just really messed up. He has two separate blogs and one where he mostly talks about God and rambles on about things like that. I feel like he uses God a lot to kind of blame or excuse what he's done. Sometimes he blames society. It's just crazy. But yeah, for all of the extra stuff, I think I'm going to make a mini-sode on a paid platform where I go in depth and I create a conversation, a bigger conversation about this case. Um, I think it would be interesting to have, you know, a conversation with my supporters about it, but for now, if you want to look up that stuff alone, it's out there. So on that note, I'm going to end this episode. Next week, there will not be an episode, but Murder Monday will be coming the following week along with an extra episode on Thursday, which is really just like a normal episode. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time. Bye.